thank you for making the time for being with us. So Kriti is a climate scientist activist. She leads communities in grief rituals. She's a meditation teacher and a fully ordained Rinzai Zen priest in the Han Shan or Cold Mountain lineage. She is a founding teacher of Boundless in Motion Sangha and a co-founder of Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center. She is trained as a microbiologist and a biogeochemist and serves as a senior scientist in the climate program at the Environmental Defense Fund. Like today, she devotes herself to teaching around issues of spirituality and ecology and believes in identifying and releasing our personal and ecological grief and bringing our gifts into strategic collective actions for societal healing. Again, I am very happy that you are with us, Kriti, Kriti today. And actually, forgive me, um, I'll use your Zen Buddhist name, Kanko, that Kanko is with us today and that you're bringing your experience to our Sangha so that we can better understand how to engage these issues of ecology and spirituality and our relationship to our Zen Buddhist practice. Thank you for being here with us. And please... Thank you so much, Kosen. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. It is wonderful to meet you, see you uh, live. Um, some of you might know that I trained in New Jersey when I came to this country uh, a week before 9-11, that was. Uh, I, I was, uh, I was a student at Rutgers University and so uh, coming to speak to Brooklyn Zen Center Sangha feels like I'm coming home a little bit uh, because I have been in Boulder, uh, Colorado for uh, many years now. Um, really a pleasure to be here. I myself have been learning from Kosen. I for the longest time, I in my mind, Kosen was Greg, Greg Snyder, and the work that is happening at Brooklyn Zen Center. So thank you so much for having me. Um, this is, as you can imagine, this is not going to be a show. It's not going to be a typical traditional Dharma talk. I'm going to, in a little bit, use some slides. So there will be my scientist hat, there will be my uh, uh, hat of a person who is grieving what is happening on our planet. Uh, there will be hat of someone who wants to just be your friend. Actually, that's the most important part here. Uh, I, I feel we are collectively in these times where we need our um, we, are, we need the emotional capacity of our communities to hold difficult truths uh, more than anything else. So, so I, I want you to stop me when I am not making a complete sense. I want you to raise your hand and bring up the questions. Uh, there is a wonderful a technical team at work here which can help you if you raise your hand at any time and we don't have to wait for the end of the talk to uh, bring up questions 
Um, I will share my slides, but before I do that, I want to talk about just a little bit uh, what I understand to be Buddha's teaching and gift for us that, you know, regardless of anything else we do later, Buddha taught us that we relieve suffering uh, by getting access to that place in our human consciousness where our self drops away, right? Even if it doesn't drop away completely, it's like melting away slowly. And the self drops away, the ego begins to drop away. In some way, you can say resistance drops away. Yeah, and and the and the and the title of this talk in my mind, and also the course I want to talk about with all of you, I'm calling it Dharma of Resistance. So it's almost like a con if you. Uh, think about con, it's a paradox, a, a, a tradition, the Buddhist tradition, which is based on inviting us into this place in our consciousness where there is no self and no resistance. How does that tradition think about resistance in 21st century? Yeah. Uh, because Buddha was in touch with no self and uh, anatta, as we call in early Buddhism, or ultimately in touch with the source of all consciousness, if you if you spend time there, then there is deep compassion that arises, and because of that compassion, Buddha encouraged all of us to talk about uh, to to lead lives that do not cause harm. Right, So there is the entire Vinaya of early Buddhism with its hundreds of rules, uh, many of which were devoted to asking monks and nuns, practitioners, lay practitioners as well, here are the things you do to each other right, to maintain harmony in the Sangha. I have been reading this amazing book by Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, one of the foremost uh, uh, translators, scholars um, in United States. This book is called Social and Communal Harmony. And uh, if you go through it, Buddha has been very systematic about, uh, you know, right speech, but not just right speech. There's like detailed stories around that. But what I want to point out here is that at the time of Buddha, the collective understanding, the time in which Buddha was alive, there wasn't collective understanding of systems of oppression, right? The, the constructs of uh, op how oppression works, how systemic collective oppression works, didn't exist when Buddha was alive. Buddha understood the harmony of our society to be based on actions and conscience of individuals, right? So it was like transform the individual, make the individual see 
that there is a part of human consciousness which has no self and if we operate more and more from that part of our consciousness we will naturally be compassionate right to this day uh, uh this is how uh, traditional buddhist teaching can operate it's changing now and people like hosen are leaders in doing that um but the the, the mainstream thinking within buddhist uh communities is change your mind change your heart get in touch with source of consciousness and right action will emerge right and and for buddha the relationships that he focused on in early pali sutras were relationship between parents and children spouses teacher and student um uh employee and employers and lay people and religious people there was no mention of relationship between uh leaders political leaders uh the country or citizens that started appearing only a i as far as i have seen in 13th century when when buddhism left south asia uh went to china and japan there is a quote i will read and then i will move to the slides this quote is from dogen that many of are familiar with uh 13th century zen master founder of soto school this is from collection called shishobo uh there are many translations of it around but the one i love is called uh four ways bodhisattvas care for all beings you can say four ways bodhisattvas uh embrace all beings all the quote here's how it goes although people unfailingly have the desire to form a nation and have a wise ruler few of them understand why a wise ruler is a wise ruler they are simply glad to be accepted by the ruler but they never recognize that they themselves accept support and create a wise ruler i don't know about you when i found this quote i was so excited because it was like gosh in buddhist canon in our buddhist literature as early as 13th century there is recognition that there is power in human beings where they can withdraw or bring their consent uh, consent to a situation right it's um power of consent for me it's very important and we'll come back to it so anyway i want to talk about now other things a few other things that didn't exist at least in the intensity with which we are experiencing them now uh in buddha's time right so let me share my screen and if someone can give me a thumbs up do you see do you see some slides on your screen the first thing i want to talk about and after i talk about these two slides we will 
take some comments and reflections. It is my feeling that the scale of human trauma that we are sitting over at this time did not exist in uh, at the time early Buddhism was uh, at the time of Buddha. And I want to just invite us to take a breath as we listen to this. And I recognize that some of you would see yourself in these numbers. Okay. In United States, in North America, one in three people have witnessed domestic violence. This is data from CDC. One in four have alcoholic relatives. And when they say alcoholic relatives, this is primarily talking about primary caregivers, parents. One in four have been beaten to the point that they have marks on their bodies. One in five sexually molested as a child. Okay. And on top of this, this is just the basic general population on top of this, there is tremendous amount of racial trauma, gender-based violence, ecological trauma that we will talk about later. You see, till I saw these numbers, I, I really did not understand this, the scale of trauma that we have to deal with, no matter which issue we are talking about, even the issue of our practice, right? Just practice. Um, so what, is the, what does this mean? This means many different things. First of all, if you are into movement building, thinking about movement building, I tell everyone, we are needed. There is no pool of people outside of us who is either not traumatized themselves or not dealing with people who are traumatized which is going to create any movement, yeah? No group of non-traumatized people outside of us. Broken as we are, hurt as we are, traumatized as we are, uh, it's for us. The second more very important thing is extensive literature on uh, trauma science, neurobiology of science says that when we are traumatized, when we've had the kind of uh, experiences that the previous slide was talking about, it damages our ability to stay in relationships. You see, if we don't have relationships, consistent relationships, how will we ever going to build our power? And last thing here I'll say here is that Psychotherapists have personally helped me in my journey and uh, they are absolutely essential. Two, two, three weeks ago, we had a shooting in Boulder, Colorado, and I was just, just amazed at how beautiful work skilled therapists, skilled trauma experts could do in those times for our city. And that model of one-to-one -one, uh, therapy is not enough for what we need to do today. We have unprecedented trauma 
and unprecedented challenges that required us to be in very, very strong relationships with each other, trusting relationships with each other. Okay. So at this point, I'm just going to take a pause, stop this sharing, just to see how everyone is doing. Take a breath. Perhaps you can think about your own lives or of people around you who have gone through these kinds of traumas. Yeah? Just raise your hand if you know someone who's gone through these things, including yourself. Okay? Almost everyone raises their hand. And the point is, if we are, if we have this brewing in us, this subconscious, un sometimes trauma is unconscious. We have forgotten and isolated the traumatized part of us. It controls us unconsciously, um, but it's there. If we have so much trauma that we are dealing with, that out of 37 or 40 people in this uh, gathering here itself, 10 to 15 people have gone through sexual abuse, have marks on their bodies. How will we deal with the scale of climate trauma or racial trauma? I, I invite um, perhaps just one or two comments, if you can keep them short, that might be better for us to uh, keep going. So if you want to Unmute yourself and say something you're welcome to. Does this surprise anyone? Were these numbers surprising or is this not surprising? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, this is Wallace. It's totally not surprising. <laughs> not at all. And, um, and I think that the people who are most traumatized you know, don't get any help. <clears throat> Both I, the people, people who are most traumatized don't get any help. Yeah. People who are most traumatized don't get any help. And we are collectively so traumatized that we cannot stare at our problems in an undistracted way. Yeah? Because there is, there is so much trauma, there is what, what the trauma does, and we'll come back to this, is that it puts us in fight, flight, or freeze. So here's a difficult situation with our democracy, with our family, or my own friend is in uh, trauma, and I have my own fight, flight, and freeze reaction going on. I cannot be present to those challenges fully. Thank you, Alice. Uh, there is a hand-raised ancestral heart. Is, uh, Hi, Kanko. I just wanted to um, thank you for the way that you captured um, so powerfully um, all the things that, you know, maybe we know individually, but putting that together in, in that way and um, speaking to it. Um, uh, in a way in which we can feel it and take it in and be sensitive to 
the trauma and grief that lives in all of our bodies. Um, so I'm just very moved and appreciative of you sharing this dilemma in this way and setting it up this way. It's very healing just to just to experience that and hear it and, and share that together. So thank you very much. Thank you. So I used to start my talks around climate with a lot of data on climate science right and now i know it's it's hard to listen to that data it's hard no matter how intelligent we are how educated we think we might be uh, how savvy politically savvy we might be if if we just look at the being the precious sacred beings that we are we have a nervous system which is already carrying trauma of ourselves, our individual bodies and our collective bodies. And on top of it, we have bombardment of these news and facts become hard to process, let alone take meaningful action. Yes. So the reason now I start any talk about climate with talking about trauma is that I want us to identify when we are in fight, flight, and freeze. So and I'm going to transition to talking about challenge number two, which I think didn't exist in the time of Buddha, the climate crisis. But I'm inviting all of you to keep breathing, please. We, we forget how precious our nervous systems are and they are giving us a signal that there's an intelligence embedded in that nervous system and we abuse it. Keep giving it more and more information as if somehow that information alone will change things. Okay, so I'm moving to climate part. You stop me when it stop, it, 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 you, your bodies have stopped receiving it. Okay. Oops. My bad. Uh, we had two poll questions that we wanted to go up on the screen at this time, if that is still possible, uh, Ryan. So you were seeing in front of you a hard test now. Please give it a try. It's a guess. What is the climate footprint of individual in United States? There are three different units here. Okay. There are 20 people who have voted. Let's do some more. There is another question that will go right after this one. And if you've done your question, you can just think about it. Most people are saying that each individual in the United States is emitting 23,000 kilograms or 60,000 pounds of carbon dioxide every year. Okay. So let's see. Most of you say it's the 60,000 pounds. So, uh, can we go to the second question right now? Fine. This is asking, what should it be in 
10 years from now for us to not have complete climate chaos. <laughs> All right. We have a we have something emerging here as well. So we can we can stop this. The answer here is 5000 pounds. So I'll just, just stop the sharing of results. So all of us are collectively right. The challenge is that we have to go down from 60,000 pounds of carbon dioxide equivalents. One person uh, in, living in United States to 5,000 within next 10 years. I say this and and sometimes it still doesn't make sense. I'm trying to drive home the scale of challenge we have in front of us. When people think about climate science, climate facts, it feels like a little change like buying an electric car if we are able to afford it or uh, uh, eating more vegetarian food uh, once, uh, you know, maybe a few times a month or uh, taking one or two trips less from with your car, that's going to do it. That's not going to do it, right? And of course, this decrease, uh, this decrease from 60,000 to 5,000 cannot happen uh, when if we just act as individuals. You know, even if we are living uh, like very simple lives, shared lives, collective lives, the way we do in Zen monasteries, uh, even monastery life has to change so much, right? All of the transport needs to be electric. Most of the food needs to be vegan. Uh, and it, basically what I'm trying to say that we can kill ourselves trying to meet this number on our own. But it needs to happen collectively, right? And I, I will not ask another question to save our time, but the total uh, climate emissions are of the order of 130 trillion pounds of carbon dioxide. So as important as looking at causes of our individual climate impacts are, we have to know that for the planet to notice it, millions of us have to do it. And I have explained this in great detail. I will leave these slides. You will all get these slides later. You can check out those explanations later. What I do want to explain here is a little bit about the collective picture. And just please remind yourself to keep breathing. Uh, we can go over this more slowly if necessary. I only have two, uh, two scientific slides here. So what you are seeing here is these ears on the horizontal axis going from 20 
2000 to 2100 the the uh, the 2 degree pathways or 1.2 degree pathway that you see in red and blue at the bottom this is what the emissions need to be for us to avoid complete climate catastrophe right where multiple islands florida in this country are underwater uh, where we've lost where we still protect some coral reefs and so on and and on this y-axis this vertical axis is the total amount of carbon dioxide uh, the world produces so today we are at around 60 billion tons this is what i was calling 132 trillion pounds this is where we currently are and if you and by 2030 within next 10 years this is where we need to be if we have to have a sense a chance of protecting the planet from complete climate chaos by which i mean not extinction human extinction i mean just having stable food system and water systems that we can feed a, a majority of our population right i wish i could see all of you and i could sense your body language uh, sometimes when people hear these facts these are very daunting it's very taunting to think that we might have a climate-based collapse in 10-15 years, but that is the truth that we can't speak enough. I will have one or two more slides and then we'll have time for questions. So just, just hang in there. Okay. And I want to point out here that the current pledges that the world has through climate agreements, the Paris Agreement, they, they are in this green and purple zone. They are nowhere close to where we need to be. And even those pledges, the best of pledges, are not being met right now. It's one thing to have a promise on paper, you know, but another to have systems uh, and political will in place to enact them. Here I'm just pointing out where the footprint of North America is in relationship to where India and China are. People are very quick to point out that, oh, our emissions might be high, but look at what's happening in China and India. Yeah? India and China are now where United States needs to be within 10 years. Okay, so what do we need to do to reduce our footprint and our collective footprint? The simple mantra is keep all carbon in the ground. All the fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, um, petroleum products that produce our plastics, they should stay in the ground. Don't bring them out. Don't uh, don't uh, 
don't try to harvest any of it, which is so hard for our greedy oil and gas industry because they make trillions of dollars out of it. The, uh, the second part of the mantra is added to the ground. So all the carbon dioxide that we can suck from the air, bring it back into the soil, right? Adding to soil carbon. In addition to it, we need to very much limit the extent of transport we have. We need to let go of meat industry. The, the way it exists is cruel for our animal friends. Uh, and, and it is just highly, highly detrimental to climate. And I know this brings up deep emotions for people. Deep emotions. Uh, eating animal uh, food based on animal lives is comforting, soothing for us. Many of us anyway. Right? We need local soils and plant-based food. And we need communal village lives where we are sharing a lot of resources. If all of us want to have our own lawnmower, there is so much that goes into production of that land more that it inevitably leads to so much carbon pollution, among other things. <sighs> I'll take a break after these two slides, which are about climate tipping points. This is a very complicated slide. What it is trying to tell us is that Please don't allow anyone to tell you that we have crossed the tipping point on climate. It's downhill from here. Uh, if, you, if you can raise your hands, please tell me, have you heard people say, we've crossed the tipping point, there is nothing we can do? Anyone? Yes? Okay. The reason that we should not allow that narrative to continue is here in front of you. Our climate system, our planetary system, doesn't just have one tipping point. It has dozens of tipping points, and they are all mentioned here in different colors. The ones in blue have to do with tipping points related to uh, ice, right, snowpacks, the frozen carbon in the system or frozen water in the system. The ones in red have to do with how winds and water dance uh, on the planet, right? And there are greens that are related to forests. Each of these systems uh, that are precious, important for all life on the planet have their own tipping points. Right? So if, if Earth's body, you call it Gaia, it, if it, Amazon rainforest is like body's lungs. Yeah? And the circulatory dance of the oceans is like uh, our blood circulating in our bodies. There is not, it's true that multiple systems can collapse all at once. We are not there yet. We have a lot that we can act on. It's true that some tipping points are crossed. No matter what you and I and our collective society does, 
in next few years, we're going to completely lose Arctic sea ice. Right? That is baked in. But the loss of Antarctica is not yet baked in. Loss of Amazon is also not yet baked in. We will lose a lot of coral reefs no matter what we do today. But complete extinction of coral reefs is not baked in. Um, this is just one photograph of dance of uh, dance of the oceans. There's a meridional uh, circulation that happens uh, between Africa and Americas. It is slowing down. That circulation process is slowing down, but its complete stoppage is not baked in. Okay, so. I, I want us to remember that it is not too late. We have crossed some tipping points. Our planet's lungs and heart are hurting. But there are many tipping points. And we need to create islands of sanity and islands of resistance no matter what. So, before we go to the next part inviting you to take a few breaths and just see if there are questions about climate science. Thank you, Kanko. I'm happy to call on anyone. And also, I welcome anyone's questions. Just please be mindful of race and gender. when asking questions and how much space you may take up. It will be okay if nothing is... Okay, uh, I have a question. So, so, you know, one of the, the big problems in this whole, not your discussion, but in discussions about climate is that the news is so bad and so it's great... <laughs> you know, in some ways to hear what you have to say, even though it is bad. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I've always sort of wondered, you know, like the negativity around this question really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and And I'm not saying we should all be happy, but it does seem like the doomsday scenario and telling everyone that and scaring everybody with that doesn't work. And not just with climate, but with so many things. So, um, I mean, maybe that's more a comment than a question, but um, are there alternatives to the doomsday scenario in which people feel less afraid and less um, overwhelmed. Hmm. Thank you, Wallace. I'm seeing a question here uh, from Emily. Uh, uh, the range of climate modeling in the scientific community. Um, 
what I have presented to you is the best of science there is. I, I don't know what modeling are we referring to in that question, but I would be totally happy to talk to you, um, whoever sent this question later on. Uh, there is climate scientists, we beat ourselves like like crazy, we we spent years looking at one little equation, right? Um, so you you can see what I am sharing with you as the best understanding. I I don't think that if if you have questions about where climate science is, I would just say that you can accept what I am presenting. That. Uh, and and to answer Wallace's question, it depends on what we think doomsday is. If if we think diagnosis of cancer is doomsday, then yes, we do have a cancer, right? Do we have a a a, a we have a harsh diagnosis, but does it mean? human life has to go extinct and all species have to go extinct. If that is doomsday, that's not baked in. So it's, it's, it's a paradox, right? It's a paradox. In Zen, we talk about cons. In one way, we do have urgency. We do, I want all my friends to calm down and look at this difficult information together. Our lives are so frantic. We are busy meeting, wanting to meet those goals that are unnecessary, unnecessarily distracting in this time on the planet when the planet is on verge of catastrophe. Young people approach me because I'm a climate scientist. People from India approach me to ask me, what should I do with my life in terms of career? Should I go for this program or that program? And I have stopped answering those questions because I want you to hear me as a friend here, not as a Dharma teacher. It hurts me that these young people are trying to make life on a planet whose basic fundamental stability is at stake. This, that stability is at stake. And if we do not collectively find clarity and courage to act, there will be large-scale catastrophe, if not extinction. Right? So, paradox is, there is sense of urgency, but we cannot act if we are always in fight, flight, and freeze. So, it's like, hold on to each other, let's face this difficult fact together and come to some calm, important decisions. I hope it makes, does it make sense? We need slowing down to act in the ways that are necessary. Use the word urgent or not, doomsday scenario or not. I guess I would, I, I mean, I don't know if this is a dialogue, but but I would counter that there's like a lot of people, I mean, you talk about all of the other oppressions that people are dealing with. There are a lot of people who are already like kind of just in their doomsday situation already. 
absolutely and let's move on to that let's i would that's what we are going to next uh, which complicates the situation further let me make sure there are no more science questions here okay let's go back to challenge number three that i know uh, this sangha has been talking about This image speaks for itself. This was a well in India, state of Gujarat, where our current prime minister comes from. This photo was taken 10 years ago. Most Indian cities are running out of water. A city of 10 million uh, two and a half years ago had no drinking water. Already, already. So yes, for people here, doomsday is already here. Uh, young people in this country, United States, are facing the scariest financial future of all generations since the Great Depression. They do multiple jobs and they don't have a security of being able to afford a house, uh, health benefits. This is world's top 10% uh, in terms of wealth produce 50% of emissions. Huge inequality that we impacts other parts of our lives is related, of course, to climate issues. And here is my summary of how many, how many different ways this issue of racism, white supremacy, and colonialism is just so embedded with the climate crisis and is the cause of climate crisis, really, at the deepest level. Black, indigenous, and other people of color have caused the least harm when it comes to uh, climate pollution. They suffer the most at the moment and will suffer the most going forward, right? And an increasing number of people are calling climate crisis genocide. When it comes to taking decisions even about environmental or climate issues, uh, people of color have not had enough power on or say in things that impact them the most. Um, when we, when we, and I'm sure these discussions have come up in Brooklyn Zen Center, uh, white folks do need to, <laughs> uh, work, work on atonement, right? Listening to the, just the truth that people of color experience and atone it, grieve it. People of color also have teachings, collectively speaking, not speaking of one individual here, uh, that white communities generally need to listen to face chaos and collapse. I remember I was in New Jersey when Hurricane Sandy hit the coast in 2012. We were without power for 11 days. I was going nuts. I had gotten used to live in the United States and I would call my mom and aunts to 
tell me what to do with myself. There was no phone, no uh, internet, inability to work. Uh, in general, people of color communities have strengths that uh, resilient techniques, uh, frameworks that are so necessary. And you can say, yes, of course, best of Buddhist teachings uh, were cradled and nurtured all over Asia before they came here. So that's part of it. And culture and ancestral knowledge that we do need at this time, uh, culture of people who know how to live in harmony with the living earth has been subjugated. And one issue that I will not get into details of right now is that people of color have called for financial and non-financial reparations. Okay. So um, let's go quickly over now just big picture connections between these three challenges that I laid out. The challenge of extent of trauma the challenge of extent of climate crisis and the racial justice crisis. As I was hinting earlier, uh, I see in my view systemic racism and white supremacy as a mother of climate crisis. It, it is increasingly important for me because environmental movement tends to be so white, so dominated by white leaders and their perspectives that we constantly come back and see uh, that we are not replicating the root causes of this crisis as we try to look for solutions. And what I mean by that is that we can't geoengineer our way out of it. It is not just a matter of coming up with enough electric cars and enough renewable energy sources, right? Um, there is an amazing uh, uh, scholar at Berkeley, Dr. Ian uh, Henny Lopez, who's argued the most important you can do, thing you can do to strengthen climate movement is to fight racism against black and brown people. This doesn't mean that we only address racism and try to get black and brown bodies leading existing uh, environmental organizations or corporations or sanghas. That's not what this is only about. That might be part of it. But uh, important point in this context we cannot solve for climate now and then come to racial healing. I know this Sangha already knows it, but sometimes I hear people saying, oh, the whole plane is going to fall apart if we don't take care of climate. Uh, we can deal with the internal issues later, right? The, the, the inequalities, the systemic racism. Let's come to it later. Let's first fix the planet. At some other point, we can discuss why that just will not work, right? Okay. And the last connection here is that the trauma and shame, the extent of trauma that we talked about, which produces so much shame in us, 
in addition to the fear of uncertainty that climate crisis and other crises bring in our heart minds. They give us fight, flight, and freeze mind, which in itself is an engine of oppression. Right? And so it's like we are traumatized. We have these difficult issues facing us. We can't face them. Together, it's just like you know, the wheel of suffering. How do we, how do we begin to unentangle ourselves from this wheel of suffering? Okay. I'm, I'm going to shift gears. I'll talk about line three briefly and then talk about where has my mind heart come to a rest? How, what, what, what do I see as ways out of, uh, ways to disentangle ourselves from these uh, systems of oppression, the status quo? First, I want to talk about line three. I hope all of you have already heard about it. But if you haven't, this is a tar sands pipeline that's coming from Canada, Alberta. And it plans to ultimately become part of this network of pipelines that will bring tar sands to the co uh, coast, eastern coast of United States so that it can be shipped to other parts of the world. Tar sands is one of the dirtiest carbon, uh, dirtiest fossil fuels. Uh, at this moment, indigenous uh, people, especially women leaders in Minnesota, are fighting this pipeline called Line 3, which is equivalent to uh, 50 coal power plants. If you look at climate perspective, if you look at climate math, we cannot afford to have this pipeline. On top of it, or you can say the primary reason to not have this pipeline that it is passing through treaty lands and it is exacerbating um, this whole issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, right? Women leaders there are calling for help and there has been an amazing series of actions going on on the land at the call of indigenous women and uh, allies from all over the country are showing up there to put their put their bodies on the line. They they are seeing direct action as a prayer, direct action as healing for themselves and their bigger bodies. Um, our sangha uh, members of our sangha are planning a trip from May twenty May thirtieth to June eleventh and. I've extended Kosen this invitation that if anyone from uh, Brooklyn Zen Center Sangha uh, wants to join us, we would be thrilled. Uh, here is an example of an action that uh, one of our Sangha members' daughters was involved in, where they created a prayer lodge. Imagine putting up a makeshift Zendo between two bulldozers and these people prayed there for several hours they kept singing 
Imagine doing Heart Sutra chant over and over again in these settings and the police and the sheriffs and the dogs are there. I don't know if the dogs came into this particular action, but they, they don't want you there. This is your land. This is your Zen garden. And people are here um, uh, obstructing your prayer. Um, but you do not lose your cool. You do not have the mind of hatred. That is the kind of spirit that is being uh, nourished at these line three camps, right? So with or without any previous training, there is an invitation by indigenous women for us to show up here. In the last few minutes, I want to talk about how do we who are so embedded in the status quo lives ourselves, prepare ourselves to take actions like this, the one that you are seeing on the screen. Okay, I hope I have made this point that we are dealing with three crises, three challenges in 21st century. The challenge of the extent of trauma, the scale of climate, right? How do we begin to empower ourselves in the, uh, in the midst of these challenges? And the framework that I've been working on for several years now, and this is not necessarily unique. This was my, me, this was my language, but I know different teachers have come to similar conclusions, even if their vocabulary has been a little different. Uh, Joanna Macy has come to something similar, the Buddhist eco-philosopher, the systems thinker. Uh, Gandhian thinking has come to similar place. If you know of Buddhist Peace Fellowship out of Oakland, California, they have come to something similar, that our islands of sanity, our sense of empowerment in these times will come from three things happening at the same time. And those three things are trauma resilience, right? You can put uh, your practice life here that we have individuals which are healing, who are healing, not healed, not enlightened. We cannot wait for everyone to get enlightened. That's how I think about it anyway. So we need trauma resilience built into whatever we do. Then we need ways to uh, offer collective resistance. That's our strategic sacred no to pipelines that continue to rape the planet. Right? Strategic collective no. We don't just push, put pressure, make noise anywhere and everywhere. It has to be strategic. When we have to, uh, we have to uh, hang a painting. You put pressure on a specific point on the nail. We just don't, you know. Uh, we sometimes in our grassroots movement, we we are not strategic enough. 
And then the third pillar is communal village life, shared life. What are we saying our sacred yes to? Right? Um, is the footprint of our uh, sangha, of our monastery low enough? If the footprint of our city low enough, what kind of cities can we really have given the climate crisis? And taking all of this, thinking uh, for the last uh, few years, we've come to offer this course that I want to speak last about. This course is called Dharma of Resistance. Um, and the, the, the animating questions of this course are, can we take inconvenient and risky actions necessary to minimize suffering on our planet? The keyword he, keywords here are inconvenient and risky. How can taking such actions become more normal, healing, holistic, and beautiful? How can we see beauty in risky actions? Can these actions authentically and skillfully express our deepest spiritual truths? And um, I will now let, leave time for questions. This, we are inviting people to join us in this course. This is limited only to 25 people because we want to work intimately with everyone. We are asking folks to apply only when you come in as a team of three to seven friends. And we will help the teams have structures for relationship building. How do we... How do we work with the trauma we've got? The primary purpose of these teams is not to do trauma healing. We will not become experts in trauma healing in a six-month course, no way. But this is about how do we be more sensitive, more sensitive, more present, right? To the stresses our traumas our bodies hold. We will talk about grief and rage. We will talk about how the information needs to flow, how decision-making needs to happen, how do we restore conflict. Uh, my, in general, my sense is that we can be averse to conflict, right? If we can't face conflict within our teams and within our um, immediate communities, how will we face conflict with police? And we'll come to relationship with money uh, to the extent money is involved and talk about strategy and importance of strategic thinking given what's already happening in your city. Okay. So this is starting, courses starting on May 1st. The last date to apply is April 24th. And sorry, um, the classes will meet every two Saturdays between May and July and every Saturday between July and September. And uh, we, will, we will have a lot of demand from folks who join. They will join us for the actual classes and then the teams will also meet with each other between two classes. Okay, 
And the final goal is that the teams are able to consider inconvenient risky actions that are rooted in dharma and healing friendships. And I would so love to see your team come from uh, Brooklyn Zen Center. That's all I have. I will send these slides for circulation. And we now have time for questions. I have a quick question. Um, and it's related to um, my first question, like the news is so catastrophic and so terrible. But then what is the potential for the earth to be healed? I mean, this is, this is a big question, right? Like things can collapse, but is there any potential for, for Gaia to be healed? It will need a lot of time. If we pollute one river, one ecosystem, it takes a lot of time for the natural systems to bring the healing back. The, the carbon oxide we've already emitted, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head right now, but this line they used to be at for millennia it will really take millennia. Uh, so we are not talking here about just air and water pollution. We are talking about the, the climatic healing will take millennia. But what we can do is to stop the damage. We can definitely do that within years. And, and and Gaia does heal. It heals beautifully. Uh, uh, my 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 dear friend and PhD advisor Tamar is here with us. Uh, she she's worked on uh, remediation of many toxic sites which have been polluted with heavy metals and radioactive waste. And it takes a long long time, but Gaia does have potential to heal. If we give it that opportunity, if we don't keep violating it. How is everyone doing? Anko, there's a question in the chat and it reads, um, I'm curious to know who determines the strategic moves and how we will know who and whose authority and knowledge to turn to, to decide with whom and in what to invest our resources, be it energy, time, and finances. Thank you. I'll give two answers. One is the answer uh, at the top-down level in the sense of what is already happening in the climate movement, right? Uh, there are a number of environmental organizations who are saying that, look, we have done the research for you. You simply trust us. There is Sierra Club. There is 350.org. There is um, NRDC. There is Environmental Defense Fund, the organization I myself work for as a climate scientist, right? 
these organizations routinely put out these uh, messages that support this cause, write to this senator. And, and we definitely do need people to be following their lead, right? The frame that I come from is that what the top-down organizations, national level organizations are doing for climate is not going to be enough. This is my personal opinion. I am not representing any organizations when I say this. My personal conviction is that the extent of decrease in climate emissions that we need in the next 10-15 years is, I should never say impossible, it's very hard to do with the strategies that are already in place or what Biden with all of Biden administration with all its uh, goodwill uh, towards the climate cause. Biden administration is filling up their uh, administration with people who understand climate challenges. I still think that's not going to be enough. And the reason is that the institutional, the institutional greed of corporations is uh, they really want to dig up all coal, all fossil fuels, petroleum, natural gas that there is till they can keep making profit. And we need to ramp up. We do not need any more fossil fuel infrastructure. And we need voices of people like us, you and me, stopping these pipelines, right? So in terms of what strategy we will use to stop these pipelines, there are then grassroots organizations which are deciding their strategy. So what we will do in this course is that first we'll just spend time with our internal ecology. How do we actually become a team? How do we grow the soil of relationships in which strategy can sit well? And then we will help people uh, understand the ecosystem of your city, your geography. And either you will be connected to folks who already have strategy, or we will help you through this course and beyond this course to develop your own strategy. Right? I hope that answers some of Lisa's questions. Matthew? Has a question. Hello. Hello, Kriti. Thank you. Thank you for being with us this morning. Um, I just wanted to comment that your your fighting spirit is um, is really overwhelming. I feel like my heart is racing. Um, it, it, it's just to feel the gravity of our global challenges. Um, and more often than not, I'm just feeling so much sorrow. Um, really thinking about the generations, the generations past that have sort of brought us to this place. And both in the harm that has happened, but also in the, the work of advocacy that is being done. And it just feels like so much energy. Um, 
neither good nor bad, just a lot to channel through the body. Um, I, I wanted to visit the, the beginning of your talk, talking a little bit about individuals. And one thing that really strikes me as I come into adulthood and participate in our world is how much our culture really enjoys combustion, really just enjoys burning things. Uh, we love light. We love um, putting animals on top of that combustion. And it's, it's so striking and difficult to try and interface with persons that I know, just person to person, when I see how much they truly just enjoy these sensations of starting the large truck or racing down the highway. Um, knowing that, that the pipelines and the fossil fuel production is sort of driven by this cultural demand that not within this circle, but that there is a circle somewhere else of people that are really worshiping these types of practices. And I just wondered if you had anything to speak to that. Um, it's, it's so heartbreaking to try and speak to some of these persons and try to offer them other options for action. So, so thank you. Thank you so much for coming this morning. Thank you, Matthew. I'm taking your question in, in my body. Your question slowed me down too. Um, I was trying to get through a lot of information. And it is true that a, when I really tr tried to take in these facts myself, um, it is very hard. Um, and I want to normalize grief. Um, sometimes I just talk about climate grief. And uh, and climate grief not by itself. It's a, it's a layer on the top of all the other traumas that we talked about that we haven't grieved as well. So the first, first uh, an integral part of this Dharma of resistance course that we are talking about or even if you never took the course, I want to encourage all sanghas, all communities to create time for hard emotions, create time for grief, create time for rage. It shouldn't do, be done in an unfacilitated way. We need skills to be able to do that right. But we cannot take any action, certainly not strategic, strategic collective actions, when we are brimming with overwhelm and grief. Grief is natural. Grief is a response to the love we feel for all life. We will not grieve if we didn't love. We will not feel anger if we didn't have an inherent uh, desire for justice. So those are positive, those are natural evolutionary emotions. They have a signal embedded in them and we need to pay attention to them 
and we pay attention to them by slowing down and bringing grief practices in sanghas is uh, happening more and more now we are realizing that just silent sitting doesn't by itself create containers for releasing the stress in our mind heart body so the second part of your question how do we talk to others uh for for some reason right now my thought is going to how do we talk to our own selves because we we are all part of this culture um it, there are many different ways you know at i would say in the context of this talk we need to understand the other person's person's trauma as well if someone is gotten stuck in the culture of combustion uh what is it that's making them so attached to that lifestyle that it's viscerally important for them to have their trucks and guns and whatever right uh just giving them facts about how this is harming the planet might not work if they are embedded in the uh other story the story that protects them the story that they think is important for their very being um but 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 and 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 then sometimes when all negotiation has stopped working conversation has stopped working direct action is a tool to have to 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 hope that there will be a change of heart right these indigenous women uh, their tribal councils tried many different ways to stop line 3 all the legal pathways that they had to oppose line 3 were explored and are still being explored and when all else fail you bring your cry and your prayer to the in front uh, to in, in front of the bulldozer and so in this course dharma of resistance we are saying let's come in with friends who slow down enough to feel the true grief and instead of grief paralyzing us how does how do we compost the grief so that it fires our movement it brings us more clarity and not less clarity and then let's take strategic actions maybe you start with negotiation and communication but when communication fails let's be ready for the risky and inconvenient actions does that make any sense matthew I think we have time for one last question and I believe Camille had your hand up. Hi, thank you. I know we're running a little late so I'll try to be um really quick. I just to say I sort of um uh understand Wallace's um <laughs> um weariness or whatever the word would be. Um uh I grew up in the Caribbean and um I remember my mom just um I mean the amount of garbage I generated in a day was probably what we generated in I don't know two years it was it was just um everything was recycled it wasn't I I don't think she just she considered herself a, an environmentalist but it's just the way we lived it's how she grew up um 
she she's very much into growing her own food and, and that kind of thing. And she's pretty handy with um, things get recycled. There's just there's just very little waste. And um, uh, so I think about that, and uh, you know how how does my life in the U.S. is very different from <laughs> what it was uh, in the Caribbean in terms of um, in terms of consumption and that kind of and and um, harm to the environment. Uh, I know you also like in terms of the refugee crisis and um, things like this. This is also impacted by um, the environment, um, and I don't hear a lot of that mentioned. But like farmers who cannot farm in um, Central America. And so they move north. Um, and I don't know if uh, individual action or even um, sangha action is enough um, in the in in North America to be enough or the West. Um, and I just feel that maybe um, the Green Deal is the best way. If there is some way of showing how you can make money by caring for an environment, I think that's probably the best strategy. But I. This was a very interesting presentation. I really appreciate it. And I like how you started with trauma. Um, you didn't make the connection very directly, but yes, the earth is our bodies. Uh, that, that's that's pretty clear, I think. But thank you. Yeah. Oh, Camille, there is so much to unpack there. Uh, uh, definitely yes to the refugee crisis. Um, in my job, I work with smallholder farmers in India and uh, the suicide rates in Indian farmers uh, are very, very high. The droughts and floods that are happening because of climate crisis are, as I said earlier, are um, devastating lives. You know, the, the doomsday is here for many, many, many. Um, um, Green New Deal is definitely great and still not enough in my view. Or I should say to get the Green New Deal passed through the Senate and House and get signed, um, we still need all of us to show up to create conversation around it. Um, uh, it's not, it's not going to just get accepted. Uh, my view is that even Green Deal, New Deal is not going to be enough. It's just, the, it's climate science, it's math. The climate system cannot keep tolerating more and more uh, carbon being pushed into the atmosphere. And, and, and that is why, uh, you know, uh, I do think that some of us need to take collective and risky actions. And uh, and one last thing I will say here is the Bodhisattva vow is like, we chant it in Zen Sanghas all the time. Um, sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to save them all. That's a big paradox in itself. We know sentient beings are innumerable and we cannot possibly save all of them and we still take a vow to do that and the spirit is i will try no matter what the result of my actions is so so i 
I do think that there is a deep teaching there in the Bodhisattva vow, which is we have to try. Trying is all we've got. That To be in integrity with uh, what we see when we have no, we are in touch with no self, right? When we are in touch with the source, to act in integrity with that, I will take actions. I do not know where they will land, whether they will and lead to quote-unquote solutions. So, so I would end by saying that uh, we cannot stop trying. And the invitation is to try it with friends who understand the grief and trauma and who are ready to stare at the issues together and see what emerges. And listening to, as I reflect on the Dharma, I feel the Buddha Dharma itself brings a fairly um, difficult picture of the world to us. But it also brings with it the courage to face it. And um, I feel that um, you've embodied that today. So thank you so much for your teaching. And I'm just very grateful that you brought this. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here to meet all of you. Thank you so much. And I will I will send the slides and I will be so happy to be in touch with anyone who has more questions. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.